You guys know the name Rick Rescorla? Rick Rescorla. He was the chief security, chief of security in the investment banking firm Morgan Stanley. First it was Dean Witter, then merged with Morgan Stanley. And he, he was a chief of security there in the World Trade Center in New York City. He worked there from 1985 all the way to 2001 and has come to be known as the man who predicted 9-11. He took his job seriously. He brought his intuition to the job. He brought his military experience to the job. And as he was chief of security there for Morgan Stanley, you know, he'd call in his friends, right, experts in counterterrorism, and have them assess the World Trade Buildings for weaknesses that could, in fact, be exploited in an attack. This is all preparatory as the chief of security. And this prepared some for the basement bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993. And then from 1993 on, he dove more into researching and preparing for other attacks on the towers, calling up his friends from counterterrorism to do the same thing, running different scenarios. And while some might have judged his planning unnecessary, right, thinking that the USA was somehow untouchable from the terrorist attack, you know, eventually, right, those memories start to fade, you start getting a little bit more confidence, right, some might have judged his planning unnecessary, but yet he persisted. Ruscorla went on to research attacks from the ground and attacks in the air, and then he therefore put procedures in place, he put evacuation uh, plans together. He he called in to have uh, safety measures put in. So, for example, you know, he said, let's make sure there are lights in the stairwells to make evacuating uh, more safe and secure. And, of course, he made all of those that he actually was protecting go through the fire drills, even the very top executives, Also, that on the day that something might happen, they would be ready. When the attack on the first tower happened on September 11th in 2001, I'm sure you guys know exactly where you were when you heard about it, Riscorla and most of the Morgan Stanley uh, folks were in Tower 2, so not the tower that was hit. And, and you know, they, of course, they heard the impact, and I assume that they also felt the impact too. Immediately, building security got on the PA system and told everyone in the buildings to remain calm and stay in the buildings. But of course, Rescorla, you know, he knew what would happen because of his research. He, he ignored, uh, the PA system attack and grabbed his bullhorn, his walkie talkie and his cell phone and began evacuating everybody down those 40 some stair, stairs, or actually, you know, the flights of stairs all the way until they were out of the building. Because of his experience, right? His intuition, his preparation, his plans. His added safety measures, his diligence in making the employees practice because of his wisdom, his presence, his leadership, even in, you know, calling people down and evacuating them. You know, he was singing songs to raise the morale there. Most of Morgan Stanley's 2,687 employees were saved. When one of his colleagues told him that he too had to evacuate, Rescola replied, as soon as I make sure everyone else is out. Story says, history says, the last time he was seen was on the 10th floor heading upward shortly before the South Tower collapsed at 9.59 a.m. His remains were never found. Even in telling this story, right, it is good 
to honor, honor a hero like Risk Rascorla, isn't it? But while that is an emotional beginning, let me turn this a little bit here. How do you honor the life of Rick Rascorla if you were one of those saved? How do you honor your Savior? The people interviewed in the brief documentary that I wrote, I mean, there's a biography out which I really look forward to reading. Anyways, this bio, this film biography that I that I saw, you know, they, they went the, the guys went around interviewing people, and man, they honored him well. They heralded Ray, talked about who Ray was, everything that Ray did, which prepared him for that day. It was a great way to honor the person and work of Rick Rascorla. But you know what would be a very inappropriate way to do the interview about such a hero? You know, if, if imagine. You know, you're out there, you escape for some reason, and the cameras are on you, and they want to know, like, how did you get out? Wouldn't it be so inappropriate if you, one of the Morgan Stanley employees, under the protection of Rick Rascorla, you get out to the bottom, the news cameras are fixed on you, and you brag about yourself and all you did? I had the idea to evacuate, even though the PA announcement said stay. I, I decided to go. I helped evacuate my coworkers down the flights of stairs safely, skillfully, securely. That doesn't honor the one who saved you. If you were one of the Morgan Stanley employees, that doesn't honor the one who saved you and almost 3,000 other people, does it? In fact, your bragging detracts from the real Savior. It obscures the character. And the work of the real Savior, doesn't it? I know that that is an emotional introduction, but church, if you get that the real Savior deserves the honor in that human situation, right? Rick Rascorla, real human Savior, 3,000 people in terms of physical saving. If you get that, then I'm sure you get why God deserves all the honor in salvation of sinners. And... You want to glorify Him. You want to boast in His work, not in your own works, not in yourselves. But instead, you want to boast in Jesus Christ on the cross. Right? As Christians, we don't want to boast in ourselves because all that does is distort the character of the Savior, doesn't it? It distorts His grace. It distorts His salvation plan. And this is exactly what our passage reminds us of this very morning. Please join with me in turning to Romans chapter 3, verses 27 to chapter 4, verse 12. It's found on page 940, if you're using one of the black Bibles there in front of you. The main point, works righteousness distorts the gospel's power and distorts the gospel promise. Works righteousness distorts the gospel's power and distorts the gospel promise. We're just going to use those, use that sentence, break it up in two, and then uh, that'll be the, our outline, basically. I'm going to tack on a third point, just to let you know point number one is very long, point number two, not so much, point number three, medium. Let's look at first uh, how works righteousness distorts the gospel's power. And this can be found uh, there in your passage there. Let's look at 327. Then what becomes of your boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Law of works? No, but by the law of faith. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. <clears throat> now, when you read that then here, he's obviously picking up an argument. He has already talked about how justification can be had by faith in Jesus Christ alone, all by grace according to God's gift, right? Justification means, right, we can, be, we can stand before a righteous God and God will declare us righteous all by faith, nothing that we have earned. And he talks about this in verses 21 to 26. <clears throat> all have sinned, look there, 23, 323, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, right? Not by works. We don't do anything to earn our salvation or add to our salvation. That's what they were boasting in. And so he says, or that's who some of his audience was, that's what some of his audience was boasting in. So then he picks up that argument in 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? Really, this, this whole entire passage that we look at is really an explanation of verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Then what becomes of our boasting? <clears throat> okay, so we're going to pick up boasting. But when I say, in terms of the main point here, distort, right, works righteousness that is working for salvation or thinking that works can add to our salvation in any way, when I say it distorts the gospel's power, I don't mean that it actually distorts the gospel's power. I mean that it distorts the way we perceive it as his people or even the non-Christian. <clears throat> it distorts the way that we can embrace it or lean upon it or glory in it. It doesn't really do anything to the real thing, right? Just imagine, once again, the reporters are asking you guys how you got out, and you say, look at everything that I did. It doesn't distort what the Savior actually did. It distorts how you perceive of the situation. Okay, so what's up with this works righteous? Let's dive a little bit more into this. So there were a number of people in Paul's day who found it hard to believe that salvation was, in fact, by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ. The reason is because they thought that they actually brought something to the table of salvation, right? They thought that they could actually work toward their righteousness or work for their righteousness. Some of the Jews took great pride in who they were and what they did, right? Their position and their mission in the world, both of, both of which God had given them. So God had given them a position, right? They were Israel, Old Testament Israel, the Hebrew people. They were unique among all other people in the ancient world because God had chosen to draw near to them, right? He drew near to Abraham, the father of uh, the Jews. And he had God had decided to give them the promises that from Abraham's line would come a multitude. They were given the promise that they would inherit a land flowing with milk and honey, and they were inheritors of the promise that said one from Abraham's line will be a blessing to the entire na to all the nations of the world. So, right, they were inheritors of the promises, right? They gave them position. But another thing that they kind of took pride in was the fact that God had revealed himself to them in his word, right? They had God's law. That's a good thing, right? We look around, we turn the television, we look at our own lives. Our lives are sometimes... Uh, spiraling downwards. And so all of a sudden, if you have heavenly instruction, divine instruction that teaches us how to live life in this world, all of a sudden, wow, this is a really good thing. And they, God also gave them mission. God gave a mission to be the light to the world. 
as they walk according to God's divine wisdom. So they have position, they have mission. But things went wrong. Not because of God, but because of sinful man. They fixed themselves not on God, but instead on the doing of God's law. They took privilege, pride and privilege and position in ministry. Not because God drew near to them, but instead because through the law we can draw near to God. And in their self-righteousness, instead of serving the nations, they proudly judged the other nations based on the doing of the law. So God designed his people to display his light to the nations. It's a good thing. They wanted, what they wanted was the nations to be dazzled by their light. They kind of saw themselves, if you think about it this way, as God's moral masterpieces. They were on the mantle of man. While God was the one to adorn them with beauty, Ezekiel chapter 16 says that they boasted as if their beauty was their own. And so they stood over and against sinners in need of God's salvation, and they forgot to see their own need. It reminds us of the the parable that Jesus told about two people who go up to the temple to pray. Uh, This is in the Gospel of Luke. One, the first man, you know, who we we would think would be a good man, right? We would want to be our next-door neighbor. He thanked God. He says, I thank you, God, that I am not like all these other bad people. And then he prays to God about a whole lot about what he does in his so-called righteousness, right? The other guy who goes up to the temple to pray, you know, all he does, all he does is confess his sin and ask God to simply forgive him. And Jesus gives a stinging conclusion. He says, you know who goes home justified, that is righteous, that is saved? It's the guy who acknowledges his need for God, not the guy who we thought would be righteous. So imagine the proud here. Imagine the proud who love the fact that they have a position and a ministry in the world. Imagine the proud as they hear Paul dropping bombs like Romans 2.5. You are storing up wrath for yourself at Judgment Day because of your hard and impenitent heart. Or Romans chapter 2 verse 1 saying to the moralistic folks, he's saying you too stand without excuse before God and you are guilty. Romans 3.23, it says, Therefore all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there they stand with their resumes of righteousness. Right, you can, you can see that their response to Paul, what the response to Paul would be like. You're saying that these things don't really matter? And Paul says, that's exactly what I'm saying. We're on the same exact level. And then to make things worse for those who trust in the works, Paul goes on to say, look, just as all have sinned, right, you self-righteous folks, you're in the same category as the Gentiles. They thought that they were the real sinners. You know, the Gentiles, the non-Jews were the real sinners. Just as all have, have sinned against all, uh, sinned against God, so all can be saved. All by the mercy of God, all by His grace as a gift according to faith in Christ alone. Not by works, but by God's grace. 3.23 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the implication. Really, our whole passage is an inference because of 1 to 20, uh, sorry, 3, 21 to 26. Then our passage flows out of that. It's all an implication. It's all a, a therefore, really. The implication is salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it excludes works righteousness that they were boasting in. This is like Paul's how about them apples moment. 
Or if you're more familiar with slang, this is his how about that moment. And his re- response to the self-righteous is very strong. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. It is banished. It is cast out. It is gone forever and it ought to be shut out forever. Why is that? Because God's intended plan was to save by grace alone. This verse right there, verse 27, goes on to say why boasting is eliminated. By what kind of law? I think what he's saying here is principle. By what principle is our boasting excluded? A principle of works? Well, the answer is no to that rhetorical question because if it were based on works, then we would have something to boast about. That's what he's saying. He's saying no, but by the law or principle of faith. The very principle of salvation, folks, by faith, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, excludes all human boasting. This is why Paul needs to clarify here in verse 28. For the reason is, we hold that one is justified, that is declared righteous in front of a righteous God, by faith, apart from works of the law. That is, we are declared righteous by the righteous God. Not by works, the things that we do, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's important to get this right, because as our point states, works righteousness that they were boasting in, salvation by faith plus works, or anything you think about it like that, distorts God's grace in the gospel. Okay, so works righteousness distorts God's grace in the gospel. It mars God's grace, at least the way we perceive it. It blurs it. It confuses it. It destroys the grace of God in the gospel, right? It goes directly against what Paul has been saying in the book of Romans thus far. Paul has been saying that the power to save is with the righteousness in Jesus Christ. That's the very reason why he wants to take this gospel of God's righteousness revealed to the ends of the earth. So how does works righteousness distort God's grace in the gospel? Well, it's by saying, hey, we're not in need of that much saving. We're not in need of that much grace, right? In and, our, in and of ourselves, we contribute something to our salvation. How does it distort? Number one, it distorts by confusing the fact that we are enslaved to sin. Works righteousness confuses God's grace, distorts God's grace by confusing the fact that we are enslaved to sin. This is, what, this is again, this is why he says that we are under sin there in two, chapter three, actually, chapter three, verse nine. He says, uh, what, what, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Here in the book of Romans and in all of Scripture, doesn't mean that we transgress particular laws only. It says that we are sinners. We are under sin. We are enslaved to sin. Our very nature is a nature that is full of sin. So the flaw in our thinking is that we tend to view salvation in reference to how many sins we have done or not done, right? How many sins, right? That has our thinking, that has our eyes trained on what we do or don't do. But to God, our problem is who we are by nature. We not only break certain laws, we are lawbreakers by nature. And so God wants us to not only look at what we do, but look primarily at who we stand before. So a lot of people, they take pride in who they are, 
even if you don't take pride in who, you, who they are, they conceive of salvation in such a way where, yeah, salvation or my eternal destiny really depends on what I do. God says, no. He says, definitely look at what you do. But hey, primarily, what I want you to look at is not what you do or don't do, but it's who you stand before. That is a holy and righteous God. Frankly, to God, right, it is silly to think that we can stand before God to plead what we have done. Because his law does not give us perfect righteousness. Right? Number one, right? It wasn't designed to do that. It's not like God gave us the law and said, look, if you do this, you will earn salvation. That wasn't why he gave it to us. He gave it to us once again to expose our sin that we might turn to the Savior, to see our need, and then turn to the Savior. Not only that, though, but we couldn't even do it. We can't even do the law. Turn over to the book of James. Turn over to the book of James. So turn right a handful of books. And here you see you see the author of James. You see James, who is the author of the letter of James, draw out the fact that, look, it's not ultimately about what you do. It's about who you stand before. You look at James chapter 2, verse 8. He, he says, look, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall la- love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So some people even right here will be like, yeah, you know, I feel pretty good. I'm loving my neighbor as myself. He goes on. He says, verse 9, but if you show partiality, you treat some people better than others, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, if you could, but fails in one point, just one point, has become accountable to all of it. Well, the question is why? Why is it that we cannot, for example, if I stand before a judge for murder, why is it that I, that I cannot say to the judge, hey, but I didn't commit adultery, so let me off. Why, why does that not work? He's in verse 11, he says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Right? All of a sudden, it's not ultimately about what, what, what uh, the commands are. It's ultimately about he who says, he who gave the commands. That's why they are lawbreakers. He says there, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law because you go against the one who gave the law. It's silly to God to think that we can earn our salvation because number one, we can't meet up to his perfect standard of righteousness and number two, the law was never designed to do that. Morality, however you might define it, is not designed to do that. Another way that uh, this distorts the gospel the power of the gospel, and by that I mean God's power to save in the gospel. We don't contribute anything to our salvation because salvation is of the sovereign grace of God. The very definition of salvation is exactly what we see God doing. That's why it confuses everything, right? If you look at Romans 3, 21 to 26, you see that salvation is all of God. That's why you can't say, look at my works. It's all of God. God is the one who reveals his saving righteousness to sinners in Jesus Christ. God was the one who put forward, it says there, he put forward his son as a sacrifice for sin. And of course, whose plan was it to begin with? It was God's plan that he might show himself just in punishing sin and in loving and saving sinners. This is why in scripture, salvation, it says, belongs to the Lord. It's all of God. 
In the gospel, God fulfills what he himself promises. And I think a wonderful verse that reminds us of God's sovereign grace to sinners is a verse like 1 Timothy 1.15, which says, part of it says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if you just stop and like break down the grammar of that sentence, it's so absolutely clear who saves. Right? It's, it's clear as to who needs saving, that is, we are sinners, because it says Christ Jesus, him who is outside of us, him who is outside of this world, he came into the world. This is really plain. Jesus Christ came into the world. Why is that? To save sinners. That is us. So here we have this concept of an alien righteousness. An alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. And so we, therefore, as sinners, need to look outside of ourselves for the righteousness that we, we need to stand before a righteous God. The righteousness we need, we cannot work up. The wonderful thing about the gospel is that God gives it to us. Thus, it is a gift. Salvation is of God's grace. It is a gift, and that's clarified in our section that we just looked at in 21 to 26. And the nature of a gift is that, friends, we don't need to work for it. God just gives it to us. It is free. And we distort the, the, uh, the conception of how we understand the giver and the gift if we think we can work for it. Uh, and I have this example, and some of you guys, you know, you know of this one, but, uh, you know, there was an elderly gentleman who used to go to church here. And I, you know, used to strike up conversation with him and, uh, you know, become friends and, uh, you know, he's a gentleman from Costa Rica, so we, we worked on our, he spoke to me in broken English, and I spoke to, uh, spoke to him and, and, uh, tried to speak to him in my broken Spanish. And, uh, one day out of nowhere, he just pulls out of his pocket this watch. And, you know, even then, we knew that he was kind of heading towards death. And, uh, so he pulls out this watch and he just says, Jeremy, I want you to have this watch. And there was just something in me that, didn't know how to accept this gift. And I was like, uh, no, I can't take this gift. Like this, no, you keep it. This is your watch. And he kept on insisting. And then, uh, you know, those of you who know Dodie, she used to be a member here. Dodie was observing this, this, uh, really me sort of fumble with what to do with a gift, right? I didn't know what to do with this wonderful gift from this elderly gentleman. She just, she just interrupted and she said, Jeremy, just take it. <laughs> and if you know Dodie, that's how she talks. Um, and then, actually, I think she said, Jeremy, just take it, just let him give it to you. Uh, and I was convicted in that moment because I refused to accept his generosity. I refused to accept his grace. I refused to accept his token towards me of, I think, was genuine love. All because, oh, I didn't know what to do. This is, this is what, this is what the Bible says we do in our works righteousness, sometimes even in our pride, in the gospel or as we push away the gospel. But if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, friends, the wonderful thing is, is that the gospel is, in fact, a free gift of God to sinners who don't deserve it. And so you too, you here might be thinking like, oh, either no, like, you know, you're pushing back against God's gift in the gospel. God's going to tell you, look, just accept it. And if you don't, there's actually eternal consequences. I mean, there's so many different reasons why we ought to accept God's free gift of grace and mercy in Jesus Christ as he died on the cross for sinners. The story of the gospel, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, is that God created man to be in a relationship with him, a perfect relationship, 
but people rebelled. They sinned against him. They rejected his lordship in their pride and really chose to live according to their own law. The problem is, is that there is only one lawmaker. There's only one king, and that is God himself. And so as we, sort of in our pride, assert our own right, as if we had any, uh, well, naturally, that would be treason against the only king. And there are consequences. The consequences, the Bible says, is eternal judgment, even in hell. To set up your own kingdom of righteousness is to reject God's kingdom and his reign, his rule, and his law. The wonderful thing, though, is that where we were, we earned ourselves just condemnation, God reached out to people who didn't even know what to do with themselves, people who didn't even know how to accept a gift. He said, look, let me show you my grace, my gospel. Here's Christ on the cross. And so he lived the perfect life that we should have. He died the death that we deserved. He bears the weight of sin and the wrath that we deserve in order that all who would turn from their sins and believe on him would be saved. Three days later, he gets up from the, gra- the, the grave, proving to everyone, everyone that salvation has been won and payment has been made. And nothing else needs to be added to be saved. Nothing else needs to be added to the work of Jesus Christ to be saved. And so if you repent of your sins, friend, you will be saved. That is forgiven of your sin, and you will know eternal life and right standing before God today even right now. That's the wonderful gift of God's grace in the gospel. Christian, I'm sure you know what it's like to try and sneak in a little bit of righteousness to the table of salvation. Make them count towards your salvation. Maybe it's your ministry, your righteous deeds, giving to the church. I have a title or I'm a teacher at the church, whatever that might be. Or maybe it's your morality, right? I don't commit adultery. I don't murder anybody. Or it could even be something really good, like I I know biblical counseling, whatever it is. Friends, what makes you feel like you have standing with God? Or what's that thing that makes you feel like you have standing with other people right here, right now? Because you're going to use that same standard towards God. What's that thing that gives you confidence over other Christians? Friends, works righteousness distorts the power of the gospel to save sinners. And friends, it affects the way that you give glory to God, doesn't it? The way that you glory in God, it affects your worship. The busier you are looking for your own righteousness, insisting on your own righteousness, the harder it is to cherish Jesus Christ. You know what this is like, to be desperate, looking for right standing in yourself. And it is hard, isn't it? There's two ways of kind of approaching this situation. There are the proud who look at this idea of salvation by grace alone. You think, that can't be possible. But then there's other folks who might look at salvation by grace alone through Christ alone, by faith alone, and you might feel guilty, right? You feel shamed. You can't believe the stuff that you're doing or thinking. You look at a salvation by grace alone, you think, that can't be possible. That can't be possible. So there's two ways of looking at it here, friends. But here, but you got to realize that if you are desperate looking for your own righteous standing in yourself, friends, it is hard to the proud. Isn't it hard to keep up with your friends? To be more righteous than they are? To try and one-up them and all the stuff that they do? And then to the guilty, you know that your guilt never leaves you. So you look at justification by faith alone because of God's grace. And you think that can't be possible. 
And then you try and erect your own righteous standing, all the things that you gotta, you feel like you gotta do to undo, uh, let's say, the bad things that you have done. It's hard. It's difficult. In those moments, you have the opportunity when you're faced with your sin to erect your own righteousness or to turn, friends, to the free righteousness of Jesus Christ. In Christ, there is free righteous standing. Yourself. There's endless competition. There is doom. There is worry. And friends, people go crazy trying to win themselves justification. Why is it? Because it is impossible to meet God's perfect standard of righteousness. God wants you to turn from yourself to His mercy and His endless grace so that so that is so powerful that it overwhelms your sin. And friends, so what are you left doing, right? When you have that moment, you're faced with your sin, erect your righteousness, either in your pride or in your self-condemnation, it's really to just accept it. That's the only thing you can do is just accept it, right? And then you turn to His grace and mercy that overwhelms your sin. To those who are trying to win your righteousness, God says, look, stop it and look to my son. Look to Jesus Christ, the revelation of his righteousness. In Christ, he wants the desperate to hear Christ's cry on the cross. It is finished. Sometimes in our work's desire to, to prove our own righteousness, we hear that and say, no, no, it can't be, it can't be. I'm gonna go, bu- I'm gonna go be busy trying to win my own righteousness. And we fail to hear it is finished. That salvation is one and done. In our busyness to present to God some sort of sacrifice to make things right as if you could, friends, God wants you to stop and to cherish the person of Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished. Just stop and just listen to this now. Hebrews 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why does he sit down? What's the the big deal with his sitting down? It's uh, It's because in the Old Testament, people would have to bring their sacrifice is to God, and so they're standing, right? The high priest would enter into the place of sacrifice, and he would do this year after year after year on the Day of Atonement. And really, sacrifices were offered every single day, but the Day of Atonement was a special day where they would go into, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the Lamb, a sacrifice, and sprinkle it. He even had to sacrifice sins uh, for himself, or sacrifice, offer a sacrifice for himself. And so that's why it says here, look, that's done away with. You don't need to stand anymore in your own desire for self-righteousness. says, Jesus Christ, for all time, once and for all, offered a single sacrifice for sins, and then he sits down. It is done. But then in our works rights, we say, no, 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 get up, get up, get up. I need to go and do something. I need to offer this. I got to do that. He says, you can't. Those who are tempted to work for the righteousness, stop it, but look to Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is, friends, that easy. And our God is so amazing that even right now, He wants you to glory in the power of the gospel, the finality and the security of the salvation that God has given you if you are a Christian, as He has put forward His Son to be the propitiation, to be the sacrifice of atonement that you could never be. We might be wondering, okay, so what do we do with the law? Because I got this urge to obey. That's actually a good thing, a great thing. But it doesn't win you salvation. You see there in our passage here, 
Look there at verse 31. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Like, should we just get rid of obedience? He says, by no means. Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law because we love Jesus. With the, the people that we love, we're going to do what they say. We're going to listen to them. That's what he's saying here. This obedience, it flows from salvation. It flows from faith. So that's point number one here. You see how works righteousness distorts God's power in the gospel. Either we are saved by grace or we are not saved by grace. And the scripture says that we are saved by grace. All right, point number two. Works righteousness distorts the gospel promise. Works righteousness distorts the gospel promise. Uh, This is in 29, 329 to 4.12. This point here is building on the first. If you mess with the first one, then you're going to mess with the second one. Remember the gospel promise here that he gave Abraham, that uh, one from his line would be a blessing to all nations? As this unfolds throughout time, this promise comes to be clear that the promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ as he offers salvation to everyone who, who believes. Everybody, whether they be a Hebrew person or, or not, a Jew or a Gentile, salvation is going to go to all, right? For all have sinned. So all can be justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what happens if I were to say to, to my friend, hey, you can be, and I'm, I'm a Jew, uh, you can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but first you must be circumcised. All have sinned and all can be saved, but you need to become a Jew first. This is a great ex- example of distorting God's promise or limiting God's gospel promise. Why is that? Because God's promise of grace was to go to everybody in the world, including the Gentiles. God is not only the God of the Jews, he's also the God of the Gentiles. This is why Paul responds there in 29 to 30. Look there. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith can seem a little strange here all of a sudden he makes this this turn to talk about monotheism god is one like what's up with that really what what he's doing here is that is he's speaking to the jews he knows exactly what they know he himself was a teacher of the law and to every jewish boy and girl they knew an undeniable fact from the old testament deuteronomy 6 4 says god is one there's only one god they're not um they're not uh Many gods, there is only one God, and this one God is God over everybody. That is Jew and Gentile. This one God stands over everybody. <clears throat> um, and this God has promised to save all who turn to him in faith. That's what he's getting at here. Everybody can be saved. This one God is God over all. <clears throat> in my opinion, you know, most here, you know, we know that uh, no one's going to say that you must become a Jew by culture to follow Jesus. But we can apply this here. We too may distort God's gospel promise without even knowing it. Do you imply that people have to conform to your extra biblical cultural laws or customs for you to accept them as a brother or sister in Jesus Christ? Do you make it seem that to be a Christian means you have to adopt a particular extra biblical opinion or a culture so basically conscience issues issues that might be in the gray you know we have to be be careful that we don't communicate this 
Imagine if a visiting family, here's an example. Imagine if a visiting family were to walk, or sorry, were to uh, talk about, you know, to talk about how they enjoyed the service to me at the after the service at the back of the door. And we got to talking about family, and they asked me, you know, so kids go to school? And I say, oh, we homeschool them. This is the only way you can educate your children in a way that honors God. Public school is sin. If a Christian parent loves his children, they will homeschool, right? No exceptions. What law have you just attached to following Jesus? Homeschooling, right? Which we homeschool. I I believe that's a, a conscience issue. But if we were to say that, wouldn't we subtly teach that right standing with God comes via justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and homeschooling? Right? It's so easy to add laws and requirements to following Jesus and do so in a way that actually distorts God's promise to justify all who repent of their sin and believe. Or is God the God of the homeschoolers only? Is not God the God of the, 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 the other schoolers? Well, indeed he is. We could apply this in so many different ways. Not only the things that we actually believe, or let's say take a stand on conscious issues, but the way we interact. Right? So there's the opinions, the gray stuff, the conscious issues, but then there's also the ways in which we interact with other people. So, for example, you guys here, do you reach out to only some people of certain ethnicities? Or do you reach out to, to people from certain certain cultural backgrounds? Or do you w- reach out to everybody here? Or try to at least. Is God the God of the Asians only or the Hispanics and the whites too? Or take this one, right? Do you reach out to the rich people? Or do you only reach out to the poor people? Is God the God of the rich people or is he also the God of the poor as well? Think about this. You know, do you reach out to the sick people? Do you reach reach out to the physically handicapped? The mentally handicapped? Even in the ways in which we interact with others, if, the, if we are keeping people at, a, at arm's length, some and not others, aren't we communicating that justification happens through faith alone and Christ alone, all by God's grace alone, but only the rich can embrace that, or maybe even only the poor, or maybe only the cool kids, or whatever have you. It's so easy to attach other things, other laws, other cultural uh, aspects to justification by faith alone. I know that application isn't one-to-one here because we're talking about very specific issues that come out of the law, uh, but I do think it is a legitimate application here. So that's point number two. Works righteousness distorts the gospel promise. And here's point number three, actually, which I didn't mention. Now we're tacking it on. With these distortions of the gospel's power and the gospel promise, Paul offers us gospel clarification. Paul offers us gospel clarification. To clarify for us, he brings these issues together and gives us an example, right? 21 to 26 of chapter 3, he says, Justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone, all by God's grace, according to a gift. And he says, look, this has always been God's plan. That's all of chapter 4. Chapter 4 is an example. That's all that chapter 4 is. He holds out Abraham mainly to show us God's plan to save by grace and God's promise that goes out to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> right? He doesn't want us to distort this things, these things, so he gives us gospel clarity. 
And he says, God has always justified by faith. Therefore, boasting is excluded. Look at Abraham. Look there at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He returns back to the issue of boasting here. And um, let's just go ahead and read this. I'll read it relatively quickly here. He continues his argument. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So right here, he's holding out Abraham. He's reaching all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and he's basically giving us a little sermon on it. And he says, look at Abraham's life. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness by believing. This is when God brought Abraham to look at the stars. And he says, look, I've given you the promise that your people are going to be a multitude. Here, let's go out and look at the stars. Just as many as the stars are, so will your people be. And it says there in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. If he worked for it, why didn't he say Abraham worked for it and then it was counted to him as righteousness? It doesn't say that. It says he believed and he was counted righteous. That's what he's, that's what he's getting out there. And he talks about this language of working for it. Now to the one who, who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but is due. He says, look, friends, let's be reminded of what a gift is. If you work for something, that's not a gift. That's your wage. That's what you earned. And you, we know this today that we could even sue our employers if they don't pay for us, right? We all understand this language. That's why he's saying it is a gift, guys. Don't work for it. And then, and then he backs it up. He even goes to David. He goes to David, verse 6. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He says, look, David in Psalm chapter 32, which we already heard from this morning from Paul, as you read that earlier, <clears throat> says there's nothing about working. It just says there that David confessed his sin and God counted him righteous. Or more particularly, God will not count his sin. Man confesses his sin and goes to him. So with, if we were to imagine ourselves being Jews of the first century hearing this, you know, Abraham was the father of the faith. David was the greatest king. And they thought that, you know, Abraham, you know, he stood for, he was the father of the faith. But if you know Abraham's story well enough, you know that he was actually a pagan man from a pagan land. God, by his grace, drew near to him. Why did God draw near to him? It wasn't because Abraham did something special, because he was so righteous, because God is gracious to save those who turn to him. So here he says that the Old Testament testifies, the father of the Jewish people, the greatest king, they believed in justification by faith alone. But there would have been an an objection. They might have said, but Abraham was circumcised, though. What do we make of that? This brings us to the second major theme, right? We already looked at salvation, the gospel power. God drew near to Abraham by his grace. The second theme that Paul returns to is God, God's promise to save people, all people. 
And Paul anticipates this answer and, and objection, uh, and he gives an answer in verses 9 to 12. Look there. Is the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? He's returning to something that he already said. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. This is, this is so helpful. He's, he's helping us understand the Old Testament. You know, there are some people who say, oh, well, God saved differently in the Old Testament. God saved differently under the law than they were actually saved by works of the law. But Paul says, he says right here, you got to be crazy. He says, you look back at the timeline of Abraham's life. When was he justified by faith? Was it in Genesis 15 when he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Or was it at Genesis 17 when the seal of circumcision was given to him? The seal of circumcision was a sign, a seal uh, that Abraham underwent to say that, yes, I will submit myself to the Lord. And it was to signify that he was of the people of God. So you have circumcision, you have a line uh, that comes from him. Um, so Genesis 15 was 30 years before Genesis 17. All he's doing here is saying, look, look at the timeline of his life. Genesis 15, justified by faith alone. Genesis 17, here is circumcision. When was he justified? At circumcision or belief? And he says belief. This is so helpful as he helps us understand the Bible. We can go over to the book of Galatians. And I'm bringing, I'm camping out on this because there, um, there are folks who are part of this church who come from the background that specifically says you can be justified or declared righteous through the works of the Old Testament, right? So we need to be careful here how we understand the Old Testament. Is it right or is it wrong? Now, these, those folks... Uh, were liberated from their works righteousness and turned to the true gospel. And if you talk to them, they you, you would have heard the story that, wow, you know, this is really liberating to come to the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Look at chapter 3, right? Paul does the same thing right here in chapter 3. He just says, let's look at the timeline, guys. You look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Now the promises of Abraham were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now bear with me here. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one. It's talking about Jesus. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Now we're going to pick back up with the promise here. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make a promise void. It says there, for if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But, guys, God gave it to Abraham by a promise. He says, look, promises were laid first. That's like the foundation to Abraham. Salvation, if you turn to God through faith. 400 years later, he added the law on top. Why does he add the law on top? It's to point out our sin so that we might find Christ who comes after the law. So really, the law is just this temporary thing that comes in between Abraham and then Jesus. What does it do? It points us to our need for Jesus. He says, look, just because you add a law doesn't mean you get rid of promise. He says, look at promise. 
Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that is Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was to put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now get this in 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He's just explaining what this law is that comes 430 years after Abraham. Abraham, law, what does the law do? Helps us turn to Jesus. So here he's just, at least when it comes to Romans chapter 3 here, 4, he's giving this as helpful exposition and understanding of Abraham. But the timing of Abraham's justification touches on the gospel promise, doesn't it? God had a purpose and a plan with Abraham. Look at 11 of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It's a lot of talk about circumcision. Um, but what he's saying there, it was the, the purpose was that salvation would go to the ends of the earth and Jews and Gentiles would be saved if they repent of their sins and believe on him, believe in Jesus Christ, whether a person is circumcised or not. So you see how the gospel promise actually has to do with the gospel's power, God's grace. And if you mess with God's grace and add stuff to God's grace in order to be saved, it's going to mess with the promise. So is God the God of the rich and the poor? Is he the God of the Jews and the Gentiles? No, God is the God of all who repent of their sins and believe. It was always God's plan to save by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So to conclude and get back to our introduction here, you see how strange it is to stand in front of the stage of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, talking all about your morality, all about your works, and even boasting in them. Just imagine the gif, or however you pronounce it, of the gospel in the background, and you grabbing the microphone and talking about all that you had done to win your own salvation or to add to your own salvation. That is how odd it is when a crucified Savior stands behind you, ready to save sinners from their sin and the judgment of God. If we boast in our works, we don't honor the real Savior, do we? We honor, we honor ourselves. We boast in our works. We detract from the gospel's power. We distort the gospel's power. We distort the gospel's promise. But thank God with this gospel clarity, we are reminded that the only boast we have is boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the mercy we have as a gift. We thank you for your plan, your initiative. The very fact that you put forward your son. We thank you that you are just. We thank you, Lord, that you are loving. And that even when we were hostile, yet, Lord, you died for us. We want to glory in this. We confess, Lord, that oftentimes we insist that we glory in ourselves, whether it be straight up pride or whether it be the pride of self-pity. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of sinners and that you save all who turn from their sins and believe upon you. Lord, we pray that every single day we here who are believers, we pray, Lord, that you would help us turn to you again and again and again, just embracing the fact that you save sinners all by your free grace, all because you are rich in grace. Lord, we pray too that you would help us glory in the cross, that every single day we would boast of the power that is found in the cross of Jesus Christ as he died on the cross for the sins of all who would believe. Lord, we pray that you would open our mouths to sing of your this wonderful grace even now as we conclude this service. In your name we pray, amen.